Please listen carefully. Welcome back to the Utterly Moderate Podcast. Thanks for joining us. On today's show, we are going to be discussing immigration and crime, focusing specifically on the false claim made by a number of politicians and political commentators that immigrants commit an unusually high number of crimes in the U.S. Joining us to discuss what the weight of the evidence tells us is Michael Light, a social scientist who teaches at the University of Wisconsin, who is an expert in this area. Before we bring Professor Light on the show, I'd kindly ask you, if you haven't done so already, to hit pause on this episode, go to the show description, and subscribe to the Connors newsletter. This podcast is the official podcast of the Connors Forum, where we are building a big community of Americans tired of bias and misinformation. Subscribing will ensure that all of our publications and podcasts get sent directly to you for free. In fact, there's actually an article about immigration and crime in the archive, which heavily features the research of Michael Light, including a number of very informative charts and figures. So I hope you'll take a few seconds and become a member. All right, without further ado, let's talk immigration and crime. Michael Light, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. No problem. So uh, I want to talk all about all of your research. I'm very interested in your research in um, immigration and crime, in race and sentencing, in race, place, and violence. I mean, you've done a lot of great work, a lot of which I am super interested in. I know our listeners will be super interested in. But first, let's just get them to know you a little bit. So tell us about your training, your background, where you're teaching now, what you teach, what you research. Give us the whole shebang there. Certainly. So uh, my background is in uh, I have a bachelor's in sociology, a master's in criminology, then a PhD in sociology. Uh, I did my graduate work at Penn State University in the Department of Sociology and Criminology. Um, uh, I've done essentially just a big tour of the Big Ten. So I did my graduate work at Penn State. I started off in my first job at Purdue uh, and now I'm at the University of Wisconsin. And so I'm just sort of touring the Big Ten in the Midwest as I kind of go along. Now, this isn't going to be a deep dive into Michael Light's history, but uh, where are you from originally? And uh, I just want to see if how much of a shock the Wisconsin cold has been to you. Yeah, so not a, not a shock at all. So I was born in Detroit. I grew up yeah. just north of the city. So um, uh, originally I, w- I was raised in Roseville, Michigan, which is just, just north of the city. And then when I was about eight years old, I uh, moved about 10 miles north of that. So uh, it's almost almost my entire family still lives in the sort of Detroit metropolitan area. So what that means is, unfortunately, I'm cursed with a lifelong fandom of the Lions. Um, (laughs) So for any of your listeners out there who happen to be Lions fans, I feel your pain. Um, But uh, yeah, so originally from Michigan, uh, I think the warmest place I've ever lived is uh, Washington, D.C. And that was I spent a few summers in Washington, D.C. And that was pretty hot. So, yeah, so I've lived in Michigan for quite a bit of my life and then Pennsylvania, Indiana, and now Wisconsin. So it is funny, though, when you come to Wisconsin, there, there are people who, uh, you know, because oftentimes we're trying to recruit people from maybe, say, Berkeley or UCLA or something like that. And there is this like kind of apologetic, like, hey, just so you know, it's, it gets real cold here. And I'm like, don't worry, I'm OK. I think I, I think I'll be able to make it. So my wife and I have definitely embraced the there's no such thing as bad weather, just bad clothing. 
So let's first ask the question of how would you go about examining the criminality, the the crime rates of uh, legal immigrants, unauthorized or undocumented immigrants and native born Americans? How do you how do you go about researching this? Certainly. So, I mean, conceptually doing group specific crime rates is very straightforward, right? So if you want to know the, you know, the, the male rates of, uh, you know, homicide compared to the female rate of homicide, for example, um, it's a very straightforward calculation, right? You simply just need to know how many uh, homicides were committed by men, how many homicides were committed by women, and you need to know the size of the population, the under, the, you know, the, the, so basically you need the, deno- uh, you need a numerator, in this case would be the number of crimes, and you need a denominator, which is the population size. Um, so again, group-specific crime rates are very straightforward. The problem with specifically undocumented immigration is for years, we've essentially had very little or no data on either the numerator or the denominator, right? So we, we don't, we didn't know how many crimes are being committed by undocumented immigrants. And uh, we, you know, only had maybe potentially sort of rough, at, rough guesses about the size of the uh, population under study, which makes it, you know, almost impossible to calculate a group-specific crime rate. Um, so... Uh, over the years, uh, organizations such as the Pew Research Center, the Center for Migration Studies, the Department of Homeland Security have been putting forward uh, much more credible estimates of the size of the undocumented population. So we've got sort of better, a better sense of the denominator of the size of the undocumented population. Again, you, this is always within a margin of error, right? So you'll see something by the Pew, say something, you know, there's roughly 10.5 or 10.6 undocumented, a uh, million undocumented immigrants in the United States. Um, and then they are, most of these organizations also will put out state level estimates. So in Texas, we have uh, an estimated 1.6 million undocumented immigrants uh, based on uh, estimates from the Center for Migration Studies, um, which is highly correlated with estimates from the Department of Homeland Security and also uh, uh, the Pew Research Center. But really, the, the, the bigger issue has been the actual number of crimes, right? So we, we know that undocumented immigrants do, in fact, commit crimes, uh, but we had really no sense, right? And the problem there is that meant it really left it open to interpretation, right? So individuals who are much more inclined to think undocumented immigrants are particularly crime prone um, could say, well, we don't know, but we think it's likely very high. And then other people would say like, well, uh, you know, what we know about immigration and crime thus far suggests that we think it's unlikely. But for the most part, most people were sort of operating really in the dark in terms of not knowing how many crimes are committed by undocumented immigrants. Um, I currently have a series of projects ongoing where we have this really unique data from Texas and California. And the study that we undertook um, is using data from Texas. And what's really unique about Texas is that the Texas Department of Public Safety has since 2012 cooperated with the Department of Homeland Security. Um, so a very common thing that almost uh, uh, in criminal justice research, and this was part of what's called the Secure Communities Program, is um, when you are arrested by a local agency, so any local agency, including the Madison Police Department, you know, wherever you might be, uh, very common, you get booked, they send your fingerprints to the FBI. Makes a lot of sense. They're checking for warrants to make sure you're not wanted for a murder in Florida or whatever it is, right? Well, once they, the FBI has your biometric information, what the Secure Communities Program did was it ensured that that information then got shared with the Department of Homeland Security. So you could essentially check the uh, um, biometric information of every single person arrested in every local jurisdiction for immigration violations. What's really unique about the Texas data is that when the DHS sends that data back to them, they kept it in their records. 
So what that means is that since 2012, the, the Texas Department of Public Safety has information on every single person arrested in the state of Texas that includes not only their place of birth, but includes their citizenship information, and it also includes their legal status. And from the Department of Homeland Security, this comes back as a very simple code. It either says legal or illegal. Um, and so, and that is coming from uh, mostly the Department of Homeland Security is what's referred to as the IDENT database. And so, uh, drum roll, please. Uh, what does that study find about how native-born Americans compare to legal immigrants and undocumented immigrants? So the general story across a host of different criminal offenses. So we look at this multiple different ways, but the general story is pretty uh, uh, straightforward, which is that there is a sort of pretty stable uh, 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 sort of three level differences with undocumented immigrants evidencing the least uh, uh, the lowest felony crime rates, legal immigrants uh, somewhere in the middle, and native-born U.S. citizens uh, uh, having the highest rates of violent uh, uh, criminality. And this is, we see this for, uh, just to provide some uh, context here, or just some numbers for violent crimes, uh, native-born U.S. citizens are twice as likely uh, to be arrested for a violent felony than undocumented immigrants uh, native-born U.S. citizens are four times have four times higher uh, violent, uh, excuse me, property uh, felony arrest rates than undocumented immigrants. Uh, they're two and a half times more likely to be uh, arrested for drug violations than undocumented immigrants, and about twice as likely to be arrested for a traffic felony than undocumented immigrants. Um, when we break it down even to more specifics than that, we look at things like homicide, assault, robbery, sexual assault, burglary, theft, arson. Uh, across every single one of these offenses, we find that undocumented immigrants have considerably lower felony arrest rates than native-born U.S. citizens. Yeah, and, and uh, if you look at his research, the, the pattern holds mostly for legal immigrants, although for a few of those, they slightly uh, outpace native-born folks. But for the most part, they're below native-born folks as well, right? Correct. So you're right. In terms of homicide, it's about the same. So legal immigrants in Texas uh, have about the same level of homicide rates as uh, 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 U.S. citizens. Uh, the one exception appears to be for sexual assault. Mm -hmm. You see that legal immigrants appear to have higher rates of sexual assault, felony sexual assault than native-born U.S. citizens. But across most offenses in the data, uh, we see essentially this sort of fairly consistent relative ranking of crime rates with undocumented immigrants having the lowest legal immigrants somewhere in between and uh, native-born U.S. citizens uh, having the highest rates of felony arrests. So you said yourself and several other folks have said that this is hard work in, in getting credible estimates about these populations. And so for somebody who's skeptical, and you know there's a lot of people who are skeptical of this research, how can we be sure that these findings are robust, that they're, we're confident in them? So tell us, tell us your thoughts on that. Yeah, so no doubt that, uh, uh, you know, skepticism abounds. And I've certainly heard from some of these individuals uh, who are pretty skeptical. So there's a couple of things. And it's, there's, it's, it's, a, it's a fair point, right? I mean, it's not as if, you know, um, the, there, there are definitely things you have to consider. So, for example, with the undocumented population, uh, it, we have to be cognizant of it's, for example, it's difficult to estimate the size of the undocumented population, right? And there are absolutely debates going on in terms of what is the most likely size of the undocumented population. So what you have to consider, though, is what which way that sort of bias matters. So, for example, um, there's certainly there was actually just a um, in 2018, there was a 
sort of article and response um, arguing about the size of the undocumented population, where you had a group of scholars saying, you know, most people are saying that the size of the undocumented population is about 10.8 million, but we think it's considerably higher. They estimated that the size of the undocumented population, excuse me, the size of the undocumented population was closer to like 22 million. And then you had scholars, other demographers um, making the argument that, well, we think that that's implausible given what we know about from things like birth and death records and housing accommodations and things like that. Um, you know, just sort of the stock of available housing. They just said like, yeah, we don't think that's very plausible. But the point there is let's just assume that that first group of scholars was right, that with the size of the undocumented population is actually considerably higher than what we uh, think it is in our article. Well, that would mean that the crime rates for undocumented immigrants would actually be substantially lower. Right. Because if by you increase lot. the denominator, <laughs> yeah, by a lot, by exactly, it's a, by a substantial amount. So to the extent that we um, are underestimating the size of the undocumented population, the denominator, that means we're overestimating the level of criminality within that population. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And so that's something to consider. Now, we actually do estimate how much. Um, we would have to, the, the, probably the bigger concern was what if we're underestimating the size of the undocumented population, right? So, um, what if, excuse me, what if we are, um, overestimating the size, not underestimating? What if we are overestimating the size of the undocumented population? Um, you know, so in our case, we would actually have to, so for violent crimes, we would have to be overestimating the size of the undocumented population by double. So you'd have to say instead of 1.6 million undocumented immigrants in uh, Texas over this period, you know, there's 780,000 or something like that uh, in order. So that seems implausible given what we know. Um, but that, that is the argument you'd have to make in order to reach parity in terms of the violent crime rate between undocumented immigrants and native-born U.S. citizens. The other concern that you have is, you know, the, the Department of Homeland Security's identity database and the various other sort of ways that they identified lawful and undocumented immigrants um, are surely not infallible, right? In fact, there's been criminal cases, uh, particularly federal court cases, um, saying that, look, you can't necessarily hold people um, based solely on a, a sort of uh, a match in the IDENT database because, you know, the, these, these are, you know, they're not, uh, uh, they can misidentify people, right? So we've seen cases where, you know, a, a, an actual you know, lawful immigrant is designated as, you know, uh, uh, an undocumented immigrant, right? And they say, well, wait a minute, I'm, you know, I'm, no, no, I hear my papers, things like that. Um, so we actually uh, follow the most, like, we actually calculate what is the most extreme interpretation of that in our data. So we say, okay, unless the DHS, so again, they report back two different statuses, legal or illegal, right? And we say, okay, unless the DHS specifically said that this person was legal, we assume that every single non-citizen in our data is in fact undocumented, right? So this would actually increase the number of undocumented arrests in our data substantially. So the, obviously when you do that, if you add more undocumented immigrants to the arrests, by definition, the arrest rates increase. But at no point, even in making that very extreme assumption, uh, do we see that uh, that group of you know undocumented, when I'm using air quotes here, um, that that uh, uh, undocumented felony arrest rate reaches parity with that of native-born U.S. citizens. So we try to get at, you know, uh, you know, um, trying to see, okay, well, what if we're wrong, and where where are we likely to be wrong? And we try and get some, uh, uh, we try to kind of wrap our our hands around, okay, what you know, where would uh, we likely be biased, and how how what would the degree of bias need to be in order to sort of invalidate the general pattern. So before we move on to talk about why undocumented folks might have lower rates, and that's somewhat speculative, we'll get to that in a moment. 
Um, but but very briefly, could you tell us, and you don't have to go into the weeds on this, but could you tell us some of the ways in which they estimate the size of these populations, places like Pew and the, the um, Department of Homeland Security, et cetera? Sure. So apologies to all my demographer friends who are probably going to find this answer somewhat unsatisfying. So the general way that places like uh, the DHS, Pew, and Center for Migration Studies estimate is called the residual methodology. And the, and the, the sort of conceptually, the idea of the uh, uh, residual methodology is that we don't know the actual size of the undocumented population. But we do know that they are included in many of our census instruments. So, for example, the American Community Survey, the U.S. Census, things like that. And so, again, we obviously don't ask questions about, is this person undocumented? Um, you know, those would be, even if we did, that would obviously be somewhat, you, it would be difficult to know if you're getting, you know, particularly honest answers there. Um, so the general idea behind the residual methodology is that we know that the undocumented population is counted in there somewhere. Um, and so can we make some educated guesses about the size of the lawful immigrant population? So things like if you are uh, collecting benefits that only a lawful immigrant could collect, so Social Security benefits, for example, um, we assume you are indeed a lawful immigrant. Does that make sense? Right. And so using these sort of um, these sort of, you know, kind of logical edits, um, we try and estimate the size. Again, when I say we, this is not me. This is what the Pew and Center of Migration, I'm just talking more generally. Um, what they try to do is try and pull out the likely documented population. And then the remainder or residual is the likely undocumented population. And so they also do things like they try to adjust for undercount. So there's uh, there's likely some undercounting of the undocumented population in the American Community Survey and other census type surveys. Um, so they do a whole host of things uh, to try and get a sense, but we still have a margin of error around those estimates, right? Again, the Pew or you know, none of these organizations ever say, we know exactly it's 10.6 million, right? They say, we think it's about 10.6 million plus or minus, you know, 100 or 200,000. Um, and so um, that's at least gives you a sense of the uh, of, of how we try to do that, of, of how or how people have tried to estimate the size of the undocumented population. And I will say is that other people have um, used various measures of triangulation to confirm the general accuracy of this residual methodology. So, for example, um, using things like birth certificates and death certificates, right? So, for example, if you were grossly underestimating the size of the undocumented population, you would likely see some very odd anomalies where you would have far more people, you know, dying than you, you even knew were in your county or something like that. Does that make sense? And so people have used various measures of triangulation to confirm essentially the, the sort of the general accuracy. Again, it's not, in, you know, it's not 100%. It's not a uh, sort of a laser point accuracy, but it gives you a pretty decent sense of sort of the general contours of the size of the undocumented population. I guess the next logical question is why. So when you think about uh, undocumented immigrants having these lower crime rates across all these categories you're talking about, why might that be the case? As you said before, they are people like the rest of us. People commit crimes. So why is this particular group doing it at a lower rate? Sure. So um, you've absolutely identified like this is one of the hardest. It is a lot easier in quantitative social science to show what the pattern in the data is than to explain why the pattern in the data is there. But we certainly think we have uh, quite a bit of theoretical uh, uh, reasons to at least offer some uh, a sense of why we see this difference. And we talk about this in the paper. Uh, we identify at least three sort of theoretical uh, reasons why we think this is the case. We talk about um, uh, assimilation or acculturation. We talk about uh, deterrence and we talk about selection. So let me talk about assimilation first. So a very, very common finding. So let's just 
sort of bracket undocumented immigrants for just a moment. It's not as if we criminologists have not been studying immigration. You know, I, I assure you I'm not the first. Um, and so actually the study of, uh, of, of immigration and crime goes back more than a century. And a very, very common finding in the United States is that first generation immigrants tend to be considerably less crime prone than uh, either second generation immigrants or their native born peers. Um, so this is a very, very replicated finding. Uh, that first-generation immigrants tend to be less crime-prone. So we sometimes refer to this as sort of the dark side of assimilation, right? So the longer time you spend in the United States, the more your sort of crime patterns tend to sort of mimic uh, individuals who are, uh, uh, you know, native-born U.S. citizens. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So we think that that is at least part of the explanation. We think another potential explanation is what uh, scholars refer to as selection. And the general idea, and I would say the person who is probably um, certainly one of the most uh, uh, well-known uh, uh, arguments on this, uh, Robert Sampson, a sociologist at Harvard University, um, he had a very well-known op-ed, I think, in uh, the New York Times, I want to say 2006. Um, and I think the title of the article was Open Doors, Don't Invite Criminals. Um, and it was really specific to this issue of immigration and crime. And so the general idea behind selection is that immigration, you know, both documented and undocumented, requires a considerable amount of motivation and planning, right? And so, and many undocumented immigrants are motivated by things like economic gain or educational opportunities for them and their families. And those types of qualities, those sort of ability to, uh, uh, you know, defer, uh, you know, sort of long-term, you know, to, to look for long-term planning, sort of play the long game, uh, motivation to, you know, work hard for, uh, to uh, secure opportunities for their families. Those types of qualities may not be particularly highly correlated with a crime-prone disposition. So the idea is that the people who are coming are essentially, we're adding them to the denominator, right, but not adding many of them to the numerator in terms of crime rate calculations, right? Simply, we're just selecting uh, that immigration sort of selects on some of the least crime-prone individuals. So that's at least a second argument uh, that at least provides some uh, uh, um, explanation for our findings. And the other one is a pretty straightforward kind of a deterrence argument. And that is there's no question that undocumented immigrants have a very strong incentive to avoid criminal wrongdoing. Um, and that is uh, one, because again, like anybody else, they would face you know the uh, uh, punishments that are doled out by the criminal justice system, right? So this is, you know, a lot of, well, how come you didn't commit this crime? Well, because I didn't want to get arrested and go to prison, right? But undocumented immigrants obviously have a very strong incentive uh, because they would have, again, some people refer to this as double punishment, right? Not only are you going to uh, face some kind of punishment in the criminal justice system, but you're likely facing deportation as well. And again, the qualitative research really shows that by far that is the thing that undocumented immigrants are most concerned about, right? It's, you know, if you said you can spend, you know, a month in jail, but you can stay, though many individuals would think, okay, if I can stay, that's a, you know, a decent, uh, a decent deal. And so again, so undocumented immigrants have really strong incentives to really avoid, again, just any criminal justice contact period. Um, and so that kind of deterrence argument also makes sense of our data, right? So, um, so I think those those three, again, we, we don't know if it's all of the above, if it's some, you know, if one factor weighs more heavily than another, um, but uh, it at least helps give some sense, right? These these findings are not totally anomalous in terms of, you know, that we can't make sense of them either theoretically or empirically. So you mentioned Robert Sampson uh, and his work, and I see that you've done work in this area as well, which is um, how place is implicated in crime. So we'll move beyond talking about immigration to talking about crime more generally, especially violent crime, right? Um, and one of the great answers to the, one of the best and, and most um, 
rigorous answers to the question of why there's a connection between race and crime in America is racial segregation is place. So um, tell us about that that work, generally speaking, and, and um, how place is implicated in violent crime. Sure. So, I mean, in terms of thinking about generally, so I'll try and answer generally, and we can see if this is a particularly fruitful uh, line of inquiry. So, yeah, by far, somebody, you know, Robert Sampson's work has been really foundational in terms of thinking about, um, uh, you know, the role of communities, right? And uh, the role of communities and how they affect violent crime. And really, again, um, uh, one of the things that, you know, uh, Robert Sampson is, you know, various uh, colleagues over the years and over the decades have, they've really sort of revived and rejuvenated the study of social disorganization. So social disorganization has a long history in the sort of sociological study of crime and really does just sort of place, you know, uh, generally speaking, places a lot of emphasis on the role of communities, right? And so uh, it asks questions like, why are some places, so we know for a fact that crime is geographically clustered, right? That crime tends to be concentrated in, you know, so select few neighborhoods, select parts of various cities. But what's really interesting is that those neighborhoods tend to remain high crime over long periods of time, long after you would expect, okay, well, let's just assume it's a you know, problematic group of people, like there, or there's just this one gang activity that's been really problematic for the past few years. But what you tend to find, um, uh, uh, is that, you know, we'll just use an example again from Samson's work. The South side of Chicago has been pretty violent, uh, for almost a century in terms of you just look at where are the most violent parts of Chicago, right? So it's hard to say like, okay, well, it's hard to explain that level of continuity simply with, okay, there's some bad eggs in the South side of Chicago. And you say, well, for that long. And so, um, what my work has looked at is not just the importance of place, but asked about what role this place play in explaining racial disparities in violent crime. And so uh, one of the major things that I've done is, you know, a lot of social science has been focused on, you know, if you talk about racial disparities and either punishment or violent crime, uh, again, for a long time, essentially, you're talking about a white black dichotomy, right? You're asking about how are, you know, say black offenders punished relative to white offenders, or, how, you know, how come the black level of violence is different than the white level of violence. And so what some of my work has tried to do is say, well, you know, we have to now include like, the United States is far too racially diverse to simply use this black-white divide uh, uh, continuously, right? So obviously, you know, Latinos are now the largest are now the largest minority group in the United States by a pretty wide margin, um, and so quite a bit of my work is to try to say, okay, well, now let's at least talk about three groups at a minimum, right? Um, and so quite a bit of my work has done is looked at, you know, what explains the difference between white uh, uh, levels of homicide relative to Hispanic levels of homicide relative to uh, African American levels of homicide. Um, so that's been some of my work. And generally speaking, what we find is, yeah, place plays a huge role. And a lot of it has to do with levels of what we often refer to as structural disadvantage and segregation, right? So the levels of overall poverty, low educational attainment, overall levels of separate, uh, separated, uh, how separated people are. So again, measure of residential segregation. All right. So historically in the U.S., and this is something that I talk about a lot in my classes because I teach sociology classes. Um, we talk about at, at each step in the criminal justice process, you see racial discrimination playing some role in, you know, disproportionately large number of people getting charged and their sentences and how long the sentences are and all those sorts of things. Um, but last year you published a paper on the declining significance of race in criminal sentencing. So what did you find? Yeah. So that was, you know, and that is really a paper that was quite surprising for a variety of ways. So I can tell you, I've been doing research on, um, I can give you a little bit of a backstory. So I started off in, um, 
when I was an undergrad, I did a, a, a semester in Washington, D.C., and as part of that, you do an internship. And I just happened to find myself in an internship at the U.S. Sentencing Commission. And I had never, I never heard of the Sentencing Commission prior to that. Uh, but this U.S. Sentencing Commission is the is an independent brand, is an independent uh, 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 government agency within the judicial branch, and they are uh, charged with promulgating the U.S. Sentencing Guidelines. These are the guidelines that every federal court uses, and they are charged with collecting rich data from the federal courts. So for any of your listeners out there who are interested in doing research on the federal courts, the U.S. Sentencing Commission has really good data that you can download um, and, you know, do some really interesting and, uh, you know, I think innovative analyses. So I've been doing research on federal sentencing for a number of years now, 12 years probably. And this paper started off um, with a very straightforward question. And we just wanted to know, so exactly your point, we have been doing research on criminal ju- on disparities in the criminal justice system for over a century, right? Asking questions like, you know, how, is it, how likely are you to go to uh, jail, conditional on an arrest? Are African American offenders more likely to get the death penalty, even though they have similar offenses? I mean, we've been asking these questions a, a lot, and for good reason. Exactly your point was we often see these disparities, but what we hadn't looked at is how have these disparities changed over time, or have these disparities changed over time, right? And um, you know, I was pretty surprised that we hadn't really asked that question in a real systematic way. We kind of just, a lot of the research is, you know, looking at data from, you know, you have data from 2000 and you ask, are there disparities? And you go, oh, yeah, there appear to be disparities. And then somebody does a study using data from 2006 and they go, oh, yeah, you know, there, there appear to be disparities. Essentially, I just wanted to know how have these disparities changed over time? And so uh, what we found there was very surprising. I mean, so surprising that I actually thought I made a uh, I made a mistake in my coding, right? That's usually the first, anytime you get a surprising result, that's probably because I made a mistake in my... I deleted a whole column in Excel. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Whoops. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, that's, those aren't zeros. And so um, using the data from the U.S. federal court, so again, this has essentially information on every single person who is sentenced in one of the 94 federal district courts. Um, so everyone who, is, uh, who receives a criminal sentence um, in a federal district court is uh, recorded in the U.S. Sentencing Commission data. And what's really interesting about the federal courts is they are notoriously harsh and notoriously for racial disparities. So I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with the history of, say, the 100 to 1 distinction in federal law between crack and powder cocaine. That is now since moved to 18 to 1. Uh, but again, this was, if you looked at just the average sentences in federal courts, you saw gross and huge racial disparities um, in just average sentences uh, for individuals, particularly in drug cases, right? And so again, just to give you a sense, and, and these were much larger than what you saw in, say, a, a most of the felony courts within any given jurisdiction, any given state jurisdiction. Again, I can give you some. So in 2009, if you just ask what the average, just what is the average sentence given to a uh, black offender in a federal court, it was about three years longer than the average white sentence, right? So again, that's not controlling for things like criminal history. It's not taking into account that maybe you know, individuals commit different types of offenses, but you just said, was the average difference? And for for African-Americans, about three years longer. In uh, drug cases, it was about four years, about 47 months just on average. And again, you simply do not see that very often uh, in anywhere other than the federal courts. So in 2006, again, to put some context here, the average white-black difference in a felony court based on the state court processing statistics, which is based on the 40 largest felony courts in the U.S., uh, the average difference is only about three months 
in these state courts, right? So, I mean, these disparities in the federal courts are huge relative to other things that, uh, uh, relative to other courts that we often study. So again, to give you a sense, so in 2009, the black-white difference is about three years. By 2018, that black-white difference went down to six months. So we saw this wow. huge decline uh, over you know about a 10-year period. For drug offenses, the declines were even more dramatic. Again, the average difference between white and black offenders, white and black drug offenders in 2009 was 47 months. So black offenders were receiving just about four years longer on average sentences than white offenders were. By 2018, that had reduced, excuse me, that had dropped to zero. There was no average sentencing difference for white and black drug offenders uh, in federal courts. And I was surprised by this for two reasons. One, because nobody saw this coming. There was no reason to think that this was on the horizon. Um, there was no obvious explanation in terms of like, okay, well, what happened here? Like, why? And the other reason why I was surprised because nobody was talking about it. Right. And so as, you know, as somebody who does a lot of research in this area, who publishes on you know, issues of race and punishment, I was kind of looking around at the literature thinking, well, again, what am I missing? How come we're not talking about this? And so this is essentially where that paper came from, was seeing this really unique trend in the data and then saying, OK, well, why did this occur? And so the it's a somewhat complicated answer, but I'll try and simplify it as much as I can. Really interestingly, what we saw in terms of that, so I'll focus on drug offenses. Um, the That difference, again, so the average uh, difference between white and black offenders, white and black drug offenders was about four years, okay? Well, there's two ways you can reduce that difference, right? You can decrease black sentences or you can increase white sentences, right? And so, and what's really interesting is that's exactly what happened. They both, uh, so white uh, drug offenders started to receive on average about 24 more months in prison and black drug offenders started to get sentenced to about 24 less months in prison. So you actually see them meet in the middle, essentially. They essentially split the difference. So what you end up with is what was a four-year difference is now a, a difference of zero months. Um, now, the the why we saw those changes um, is essentially the the focus of the article, right? Not only showing that this trend has occurred that people should be aware of, um, but also why did we see it? And um, the first is, again, the first is that we saw this um, sort of divergent effects, right? As white sentences started to increase and black sentences decreased, we saw that um, these changes were due almost entirely to what we call observable case characteristics, um, and, and so um, what that means is we didn't really see much of a change in how individuals were treated relative to their underlying criminal conduct. So, right. So this is often what we refer to as unexplained disparity. Right. So we see two similarly situated offenders, one's white and one's African-American. And we ask, OK, why did one receive a different sentence? What we find is that sort of the treatment of individuals did not change considerably over this period. So what that means is the reason why we saw the either an increase in sentences or a decrease in sentences, depending on which group you're focused on, is because of the sort of the underlying change in case characteristics, as opposed to it wasn't judges treating individuals differently over this 10-year period. And the last thing that really seems to be clear is that um, the prosecutorial use of mandatory minimums changed considerably. And that is that uh, prosecutors were bringing far fewer um, drug mandatory minimums, particularly against African-Americans over this period. 
And what's really interesting, so I talked about that 101 crack powder disparity, right? So again, one of the most nefarious sort of uh, uh, drug laws that we have, right? I mean, it's just been received. We've, you know, we've spilled a lot of ink over these laws and for good reason, right? They're very difficult to justify. They were difficult to justify at their, um, when they f- were first passed and they became increasingly uh, more difficult to justify. So it wasn't until uh, the Fair Sentencing Act uh, that we actually saw a, a change um, in these laws. So now it went from 100 to 1 to 18 to 1 is the current crack powder uh, disparity in federal law. I actually look at this and I say, like, that actually isn't what changed. Um, you know, you might expect, oh, okay, it's simply that change in the law is what drove these dramatic changes in the uh, average sentence differences between white and black offenders. What actually changed is that we saw far fewer crack cases being brought against African-Americans. Now, what's really interesting about that is that that doesn't really seem to track underlying changes in crack use. So if you look at, you know, our best metrics of underlying, say, cocaine use or heroin use or crack cocaine use, uh, we actually don't see that crack cocaine dropped a whole lot over this period. So it really seems to be a more concerted focus on bringing fewer of these really harsh sort of crack cases into federal courts. Um, and then this was also coupled with we're bringing a lot more methamphetamine cases, many of which involve white offenders. So you see this sort of if you just look at the sort of composition of the docket, you see far fewer uh, crack cocaine cases against African-Americans and far more methamphetamine cases against whites. And methamphetamine is a very highly punished drug in the federal sentencing guidelines. So, you know. Uh, it's that at least helps explain some of these differences of why we've seen this dramatic di- change in inequality in federal sentencing, at least racial inequality. All right, Michael, before you go, some uh, some quick hitter questions. You ready? Let's do it. All right. So unauthorized immigration and terrorism. Is there a connection? No. Comprehensive immigration reform coming anywhere in the near future? Seems unlikely. All right. Uh, immigrants and the economy, net positive or net negative? Uh, I think net, it's a net positive. When you hear the political discourse, you know, people on TV each night saying that immigrants are polluting the country, uh, that they're rapists, that they're bringing crime with them and all these other sorts of things. Um, and it's so misaligned with what your research shows. What, what do you think when you see that? Well, so one of the things that I often say is, you know, this is not the the fact my research does not close the door on debates about immigration. Right. And same as my research on, you know, race and sentencing don't doesn't close the door about, you know, questions about, you know, racial fairness in the criminal justice system or anything like that. What I always just say is debates, no doubt, should, you know, will continue on undocumented immigration and what is, you know, the, you know, proper sort of constellation of laws that we should have uh, to, you know, uh, to appropriately address undocumented immigration, things like that. But what I always just say is I think these debates should be informed by our best available evidence. And so um, if, you know, if somebody says uh, I'm against undocumented immigration because I think that we have a right to, you know, might be self-destination, whatever it might be, right? We get to choose who the polity is um, in a government of, you know, in a self-governed society. You know, that doesn't quite, um, like that's outside of my sort of area. Does that make sense? When somebody says I'm against undocumented immigration because they increase crime, all of a sudden that's when I say, well, wait a minute. Like that's where my sort of, you know, criminology, you know, uh, um, views come to the fore. Um, so, yeah, so it's, it's interesting that, you know, it's quite a bit of the public discourse is, is considerably misaligned with what we know. Um, but it's not like, you know, crime is the only area where that occurs. 
Michael Light, University of Wisconsin. I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours, but you would not want to do that. Neither would your wife or, you know, anybody uh, there at Wisconsin. So, Or my three kids. Yes, right. So uh, thank you so much for joining the program today. Of course. Thanks for having me. A lot of fun. Happy trails to you Until we meet again Happy trails to you Keep smiling until then Who cares about the clouds when we're together Just sing a song and bring the sunny weather Happy trails to you Till we meet trails to you until we meet again happy trails to you keep smiling until then who cares about the clouds when we're together just sing the song and bring the sunny weather happy trails to you May the good Lord take a liking to you. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Oh, no, Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial, LLC, member SIPC.